Yeah, it would have been good if I could have remembered what the blurb was. It was a book, right? Six clones, locked room, murder, they've all been killed, blah, blah, blah. Read, go and read the Goodreads page. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to a special book club episode of Octothorpe, the podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And today we have read a book. Have you finished the book, Liz? Yes. We've all read the book. I'm good. I've done my homework. I read it yesterday and Liz read it yesterday and the day before? Yes. Uh, and Alison read it a couple of weeks ago, I think. Months ago, I can't remember anything about it. Oh, I'm sure I made some notes. Hey. So yeah, so the book we read was a book called Six Weeks by Mer Lafferty. Uh, this was on the Hugo Ballot at the San Jose Worldcon in 2018. And I believe it lost out to one of the N.K. Jemison trilogy. Uh, but I can't remember exactly which instalment. Um, which is, you know, if you're not going to win a Hugo, not winning a Hugo in favour of, of N.K. Jemison is not a bad one to lose to. And yes, I liked it when I read it back then, and so I've taken the opportunity to make Alison and Liz read it. So Six Wakes is a book about a generation ship, or not not quite a generation ship, but a sort of colony ship that has been um, launched from Earth and is heading to a planet to colonise it. And it follows six people on the ship who are the crew, and the novel opens with basically these six people coming awake from cryosleep from their last mind map, which is their last kind of memory backup, which was taken just as they boarded the ship, and uh, slowly realising that perhaps everything might have gone incredibly wrong at some point, and no one really quite knows why. And so it's in some ways a kind of locked room mystery set on a spaceship in which the murder victims and the investigators are the same people. Have I missed anything out, do you think, Liz? No, I think I think that is first summary. It is basically a locked room mystery, although I'm sure there are mystery fans bigger than us who will write in and tell us if this is actually a locked room mystery. I don't know if it actually is, because a locked room mystery, the idea is that it's kind of impossible and you have to work out what impossible thing has been breached. Whereas this is, I think, less a locked room mystery as much as a interesting murder mystery where the people investigating it are the people who have themselves been murdered which is a particularly nice like science fictional twist it's not just that they're investigating their own murders but they also know that one of them must be the murderer and because none of them remember none of them like know whether they were or not so that is kind of another wrinkle in the ointment which is quite nice i don't know whether we want to start with alison and then liz or or vice versa but I'm up for either. Rather than you, because you made us read it. So I, no, I would, I think we should start with maybe John explaining a little bit more about why I picked it. Would be nice. Okay, fair enough. I could do that. So this is something Liz mentioned when, when we were kind of describing the kind of core setup of the novel. But one of the things I really like about this novel is that I think it's a story you couldn't tell if you didn't use both of the genres it mashes up. Like, I don't think you could tell this story in a pure crime setting, and I don't think you could tell it in a purely SF setting. I think you need tropes from both genres. And I really like that 
the way that Lafferty blends those together. And I thought it was, I mean, as someone who likes crime fiction anyway, um, I, I, that really appealed to me for obvious reasons. And I also liked how I don't think I don't think it's impossible to see the twists and turns coming if you're paying attention. And I suspect that I suspect that Liz and Alison might both have seen various of the kind of uh, revelations coming over the course of the novel. But I really like how tight the book is. If something is mentioned, it's usually because it's going to come back later in the novel and be a key point. Uh, and even parts where I didn't remember how it came back in on the reread i was pleased to see the threads kind of being marshaled back together at the end which i i I did really enjoy i also very much found the characters kind of compelling i've always liked i've read mer's other work i think it's fair to say i like the shambling guide to new york city and its sequel better than i like her other stuff but one of the things i quite like is kind of like her sense of of humor and her her sort of um approach to character both of which i thought were very good in this book since this book she's written another crime science fiction novel which i was less impressed by it was it was good but it was very much it was much lighter and much less well done than this one yeah i i I like this a lot i guess the other thing i like is the way she layers the revelations is also interesting because you find out quite early on i think that things are not as disconnected as they seem but the connections keep being layered on and so that kind of makes it interesting as well because even if you think you've spotted a connection i was never sure like i've spotted a connection but is that going to be the final piece of that puzzle or is there going to be more to reveal later and that that was cool i think the main reason i love it is just because of the premise i think the premise of six clones having to investigate their own murders on a spaceship is just a friggin wonderful idea and that, you know, I went through the entire book on a cloud of kind of, ah, oh, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> so I was very, I was very um, well disposed to it going in. I think it is fair to say when I first read it. That is quite interesting because I think I agree with John that there is a great premise for this book, but I didn't think it was, it, I don't think it actually is a great book. Um, fair enough. But it's interesting because I think some of the reasons John likes it are also the reasons I don't like it in in some ways. I'm, I mean, a bit harsh. I don't I didn't like super dislike it. I just think if I'd read it on a Hugo ballot, I definitely would have, you know, put the N.K. Jemison above it. And it was enjoyable enough, but I'm not sure it's one I would have picked to recommend. Yeah, some of the things John likes, I think, are the reasons I don't like it. So one thing is, I think you're right in that it needs to be like the mystery and the science fiction to get where it's going. And it has to be science fiction to do this fascinating, the clones wake up and are investigating the murder of their previous bodies. But I didn't find the mystery at the end very satisfying. I didn't feel it kind of paced itself quite right for me. I think that there's quite a few revelations that come near the end that are too close to the end and a bit too much maybe it's not exactly bagginess at the early stages but laying the seeds for things that come back later but there's too much laying of seeds and then you're like okay well you keep mentioning this so when is this going to come back to being the super important thing and so that kind of pacing didn't really work for me as as well as it should have and I get you kind of want to have like a very big dynamic reveal at the end but I think it went almost too fast with the revelation of a oh that's how it was done and then it goes into kind of a I'm trying to work out if I can do this without doing enormous spoilers I think maybe I'll try and do some without spoilers and then we'll have to have a uh, listeners stop here if you don't want spoilers section 
it, it basically goes into the end scene, which I found a little bit, there's like a kind of end climax, which was a bit too much stuff going on and too confusing. And then it kind of ties itself all up. So I just felt like the, the structure and the pacing after kind of the initial really interesting first bit didn't work for me throughout. Yes. So I'm going to start, as always, with something that I absolutely loved about this book, which is that it turns out to be a piece of FTL fan fiction. I mean, in the afterword, um, Merlafter says it's not a piece of FTL fan fiction, but it arose out of consideration of how FTL's clone bay mechanism would play out in real life. And as somebody who's played really far more FTL than is good for me, um, I really like that. So, so I thought that was a very good example of um, art. Um, inspiring other art in a really interesting way and she could perfectly well not have mentioned it and sold the book you know it's on it's not actually FTL fan fiction it's not otherwise like FTL at all I don't think it's just that one point about FTL's slightly nonsensey clone bays and what that might look like in a book I will tell the listener FTL is a roguelike video game it was released oh a few years ago now it stands for Faster Than Light, obviously. Uh, it's available on multiple platforms. Basically, the idea is you are on a ship and you fly through a um, sequence of points in a galaxy trying to get from where you started to defeating an evil empire. The plot isn't really the key part. It's a very fun game. Uh, apparently, it came out in 2012, so it is 11 years old now, which is, you know, terrifying. Ancient in video game terms but it's okay because it turns out they did make good video games in the past it mashes up um crime fiction and um science fiction um so crime fiction for me and and i'm not a great crime fiction fan so i may be getting this wrong tends to have stuff that is more what i think of as detective and mystery novels and stuff that is more sort of thrillers and this thinks it's a detective novel but it's actually a thriller and there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is that it's got a lot of absolutely horrible stuff in it. I describe this as a slasher thing. There's a, a lot of the action that takes place in, in real life is actually people whacking each other with swords and things. So, you know, if you don't like that sort of thing, this might not be the novel for you. But the other way in which it's more thriller-like than detective-like is that the information you would need to solve the mystery is deliberately withheld from you. And in fact, it has to be deliberately withheld from you because if any more of it were revealed, you would immediately guess what was going on even more than you already do. Um, so it doesn't really it doesn't really function on the detective or it didn't for me function as a detective story. It functioned as. So although you've got these people trying to work out what's happened to them, it felt as for me as if it was much more over to the thriller or horror side than it was over to the detective side, a mystery side. And so because insofar as I do like crime fiction, I like the sort of cosy detective novel where sweet little old ladies go and go and um, investigate horrible murders without actually ever getting terribly close to them. It was that bit didn't work maybe as well for me as it might have done. I did like the science fiction bits of it quite a lot, though. Yeah, so that was that was. So as I think I said in a previous Octothought record, might have fallen out in the edit. Um, it was it was a bit nasty for me. It was a bit over to the horror side for me. There were scenes I was kind of like, oh. And in fact, I said I couldn't remember how I'd read this, but in fact, what happened was that I started it. It felt a bit horrible. I put it down for a bit, but then I was like, oh, I have to read it for Octothought. Picked it up and then read it all the way through in a single lump because I did find it quite gripping. So, so it was a it was a grippy novel. I read it, it, I thought it was an easy read and I read it all very happily after the first few bits. 
apart from every so often I'd, ew, that's horrible. Yeah. So I think that, I think you're right. I don't think you can um, work out what's going on from the beginning. But obviously it's tricky because it's basically the science fiction equivalent of the amnesiac um, thing, right? Where like they don't have the memories or the logs. And so I wonder whether that's kind of shadowing what happens to the characters. So I didn't, it kind of felt like you have as much information as the as the characters do at any point, or maybe not entirely. Obviously, if you had all the information that every character has, you'd know the answer. But because there's no way for... I guess Mer could have done it from a single viewpoint and given you all the information about one character and none of it about the others. But I thought this struck a good balance between kind of keeping you as in the dark to a similar level the characters are. So I, I completely think you're right. But I think that worked for me better than it worked for you probably i will i will say i also when i reread this i blasted through it i read it in a single sitting under a cat which was very good <laughs> so so i thought the authorial voice was a bit of a mess this is one of these technical details because the way that you do that is have separate sections from each character's viewpoint but in a way that has the character narrating and what we actually got was omniscience where we have a an authorial voice that is omniscient but actually doesn't tell us things if it doesn't suit it and and that's a bit odd <laughs> you know so i feel like that was an editorial choice and there are a few things about this book where i think ooh editing ooh maybe the editing could have been a bit more rigorous and that may be part of the issue why it didn't i don't think it found a uk publisher ever for what is, I think, a perfectly solid book. Yeah, no, it didn't. I don't know. I mean, I uh, pass. I know what you mean. I think I do wonder whether at the beginning of the book, the first couple of chapters, like, until I got into the zone of the novel, I think, like, there are the odd character perspective shift that, like, slightly caught me by surprise. And so I do know what you mean, that, like, maybe better, clearer delineations might have been good. So, yeah, I can see that. I'm a big fan of unreliable narrators, but I don't know if that's what she's trying to do. I don't really think she is. Yeah, I don't think you can have seven of them anyway, or six of them, or however many there are. I think that is too, that is asking a lot of your reader. I will say, so I guess we should sound the spoiler klaxon. Quite soon, yes. <laughs> is there anything else we want to say without spoiling this novel? So I don't know. So this is not really a spoiler, but I will say it's something that coloured my view of the book, which is that if you currently buy it off a UK Amazon Kindle store, it has a bunch of formatting errors. And I realise... Yeah, that's because it, it doesn't have a British publisher, so she self-published it. Yeah, and I realised that when I got to the end and it says, you know, you can, you can write to the author with errors, so I may do that. But the, the errors specifically are line breaks in the wrong places so in the middle of paragraphs and not between different characters speaking and so that has probably colored some of my opinion of the book because they are unfortunately in the edition I'm reading there are throughout kind of errors in the formatting that make it kind of hard to kind of spot which character is talking at times it actually has character shifts in the middle of paragraphs as a result of this. But I think I cottoned on fairly quickly that this was actually a formatting fault rather than a deliberate authorial choice. And once I got used to it, I, I recognised when they happened. But that, yeah, that that does make it harder. Yes. So, I mean, it's this is not it's not really coming into spoilery territory. 
I guess. But what I would say is one problem I had with the book is I think the characters' voices sound pretty similar. And so the fact that occasionally their conversations were all running into one line and I had to go back and reread it to make sure I knew exactly who was saying what line, that did not, unfortunately, help the experience of reading it. But I recognise that as a formatting that like is a formatting error and you know it's it i presume that has crept in at some point with a kindle update but it it was causing me a few problems when i read it so i can't really kind of disentangle that from the reading experience unfortunately fair fair i read it in paper because i imported it i bought it from blackwells when it was nominated the first time um because it wasn't in the packet uh if i recall correctly so i bought the paper version from from blackwells um so i did not have I did not have that experience. Um, but yes, that sounds annoying. I mean, this is a regular criticism of books that have a lot of different viewpoints. Um, okay, still not too spoilery. Not everyone on the ship is who you are initially led to expect them to be or acting in accordance with the motives they initially say they're going to have. I don't think that's something that's particularly unusual. This is one of the ways in which I think science fictionally the book was quite good, in fact. It did some things in quite a clever way around the um, the nature of self and what indeed is meant by cloning and all of that stuff. And some of the ways in which everything gets tied up together is jolly good. Um, but, but that does lead to this you probably wanted more distinct voices than you got but I understand that I'm not I'm not a writer and I don't know how hard it would have been to to write those voices I I can't I can only write in one voice right guys I can I'm I'm resolutely Alison all the time (laughs) that is um that is definitely true uh just in case any listeners were wondering uh yes uh, agreed if I write an, if I write a novel, people will complain that all the characters are a bit like me. But it is I can see it being like a coherent critique. Shall we sound the spoiler horn? So yeah, so one of the things I think the other thing I really like about this book, and I like this in general in fiction. And it probably says a lot about me that I do like it, is that I really like books that can have happy endings which don't feel like just they're out of nowhere. Like the happy ending in this book is well telegraphed in advance with the pig. And I really like that because I think if you're paying attention, you can probably work out that the fact that they can cook a pig means they could probably recreate the humans. But I have a note here, which is Chekhov's food printer. (laughs) <laughs> um, why is maria cooking a pig the plot demands it if you had if you had a 3d printer so so this bit that john liked is something that i thought was fucking stupid oh no okay <laughs> you know absolutely appalling and 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 i was like why can we cook clone humans but not vegetables that's insane that's absolutely ludicrous and then they, it turns out that they can clone vegetables perfectly, provided it's hemlock. Oh, well done, guys. I think um, I think they say they can is just not as good, which I assumed was because life was protein and vegetables are not made of protein. But I don't know. Because most of the world effort in 3D printing food at the moment is very focused on meat and protein. And I don't know how that will change in the future. Where's the money? Follow the money. <laughs> Well, exactly, right? When also follow the climate change, because I can see why, in general, 
cows are worse for the environment than this is this is something i know that there's debate on and i don't want to present this as like a, a fact necessarily but i know that like one of the reasons there's a lot more research into 3d printing meat is because it's thought that meat is worse for the environment than than crops um and so like i don't know i mean it, yeah it's tricky no i think it's where the money is because meat's vastly more expensive than vegetables so if you can if you can make meat you can sell it to people for more money than you're going to be able to sell vegetables for and but also you are correct that the demand is probably there because people want to remove meat from their diet first this is a digression but all to say did you think this book had a happy ending yes i did why because it does for whom for sally no although i did liz what do you think of the ending i mean i think it's potentially a happy ending but you know what we know what we know from the book listeners is that instead of this being a crew perfectly picked to psychologically balance each other out over their immensely long space journey it's a bunch of people picked to be the worst possible companions on a space journey i i, I had eastercon flashbacks all the way through this I think your happy ending is predicated on them now having gone through this experience and being like, now we are going to get along fine and it's great rather than it being, okay, in 25 years, they will all also have stabbed each other to death again. Also from my notes, why is the AI programmed to return to Earth if this entire mission is designed to sabotage? What makes anyone think there's a planet at the other end? What on Earth makes that plausible? The more effective sabotage would be to have way less synthesis since this goo on the ship than necessary to reach landfall and indeed no landfall to reach. I think I'm just a nihilist in terms of my science fiction. I think the argument might be that an eternity of never getting anywhere is worse punishment than a shorter eternity. And so there's loads of synth goo because she really wants to drag it out. But basically, listeners, it turns out that, as Liz says, all of these people have been very carefully selected. They are all enemies of a character we meet quite earlier in the book called Sally Mignon, um, who is a certified rotter. And this is the answer. This mission is the answer to the question, how do you get revenge on your enemies if death doesn't matter? And the answer is uh, you fire them off the earth and force them to spend untold years in a small tin can, which is it's an imaginative answer to the question. Yeah. So the the thousands of people in cryosleep are also Sally's enemies because she's one of these super rich people who has a lot of enemies and they're just going to die quietly. So I thought that was kind of interesting as well yeah yeah because she's not actually giving them a a terrible death she's only picked these six characters for the terrible death yes i will also say in some ways so we discussed how it see it was inspired by a 2012 work which is ftl uh in that it was like based on lafferty's musings about how cloning would work um in a science fiction novel i also wonder if it was partly inspired by another 2012 work which is the ridley scott film prometheus because prometheus is a film where it purports that the crew are very carefully selected uh (laughs) to work well together and then portrays an utterly incompetent mess of idiots and i'm like maybe this is maybe this is mer's take on that because there are points where i'm like yeah this does feel very much like the crew of of um of prometheus in terms of their ability to work well together but yes maybe i i don't know so so were the crew of Prometheus deliberately chosen not to work well together or 
No, it's said in the movie that they're carefully selected to be like an elite team and then nothing in the text of the movie at all in order for the movie to go they all have to be utter imbeciles who argue all the time and like the film just tells you these are the people at the top of their field and they're all going to work very well together and then nothing in the text of the movie it's a bit like ted in how i met your mother everyone in how i met your mother repeatedly says ted is the best bloke but he is an stone cold asshole from episode one to the last episode uh and it's really there's a huge cognitive dissonance and i like fiction where that's true and this feels like a book where she's using that trope she's using the fact that very often we are told these characters will work well together and then the writing really doesn't reflect that but she's doing it on purpose to sort of play with her expectations a little bit which i do i did quite like that aspect of things yeah, I did like that. I did like all the stuff about um, them, well, not being themselves. It, it, all the all the fucking around that had been done with their brains at various different times and in various different ways, and the way in which she came across, she looked at that from multiple different angles, and that was all great. So the science fictiony bits of it really like this. I really like the science fictiony concepts, but in practice, in the book, the science fictiony concepts feel like. You know, one character is one of those like genius hackers who types away and all the text goes green and then they figure it out. It just relies on me to think that someone can basically instantly look at some kind of computerized map of a human brain and perfectly isolate a single trait and remove it. Along with their DNA, there was some there was some slightly wobbly stuff there. It just it was it was much too easy a lot of the time to do the very precise hacking. Yeah, we're not we're not necessarily shown, and we have done the spoiler hack warning yet. We're not necessarily shown well enough why Maria is that person. Yeah, we never see a. No, we we we're told she has the background, but we 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 do see it her doing it a bit with a food printer, um, but maybe not enough, and maybe her not noticing that the food printer is exactly the same replicator as the cloning bay is is implausible that's a thing that we've not been told and when she makes that when she realizes that you're kind of like well surely if you're the character you've been described as being you would instantly have realized that i mean surely if you have a food printer that can actually essentially grow people a new body and put their brain into it it could also make a lettuce i don't know well indeed i i really everything about vegetables really wound me up (laughs) If I'd been if I'd been beta reading this, there would be have been a lot of and there's a whole section at the beginning where they're, which I think is meant to be character development and introduce you to the characters where they're kind of tetchily talking about food in this locked room, and and all of that I found kind of tedious and not moving things forward fast enough and not really expanding on the characters as much as you might think it would. I can see I can see the vegetable thing being annoying. Um... It is like one sentence. Um, <laughs> and, and like, it appears to have really annoyed both of you, which fair. But like, and, and again, I think it, it's a sentence that makes sense in, in terms of like the current state of the art in food printing. But if she had just deleted that one sentence. No, but, but then, but there's actually a lot of stuff about when they're kind of talking about the early scenes. So they're clones and they, none of them know each other at all at the beginning of the book. They're all, they're all blank clones and they're supposed to be having the sorts of conversations that you have with people that you've only just met. And the conversations they have are not at all those sorts of conversations. Um, 
they are they are tetchy conversations between people who are massively not getting along with each other, which does fit with the end of the book. But but it is also tricky because if I woke up and found my own dead body floating in front of me, I don't know how similar that would be to an icebreaker. <laughs> oh, I've had next time I'm going next time I go on a management training course, I have a whole plan. Oh no! Oh no! But yes, I think um, the point about hacking is frustrating. I do get that. I will say, in general, willing to forgive this in all fiction because vanishingly little fiction actually gets the act of hacking right. Um, like Murderbot's a great example where none of the computer stuff makes any sense at all. But I kind of just let it wash over me, and this felt like that. But I can see the point for sure. I liked. Actually, if you're going to go on to a different bit, can I just come back on that? I think there is, so there's, well, there's two reasons it annoys me. One is it talks about DNA in ways I think are, don't seem super realistic about DNA. There's a bit where, um, yeah, like Maria is, um, who is the, the hacker character, seems to be sort of telling the AI how to do something about like making her own DNA matrix. And it's just like... But I think the real reason it annoyed me is it, it comes to a, another bit of the book, which is this is like fairly mid to far future and it doesn't feel very mid to far future, like 30 years time. Yeah, that's fair. I think that that's a coherent. Um, I think that's a coherent point. I will say as a physicist, it always amuses me when biology is in science fiction, because I think we've said this on the podcast before, but I mean, Liz, like, oh my fucking God, if that annoys you, imagine if you're a physicist, because it's all nonsense. It's true, because I'm like, FTL, fine, what the... <laughs> Shall I talk to you about mathematics in science fiction sometime? <laughs> <laughs> we need to have an episode one day about just like, the one that gets me the worst is Alien Covenant with the solar storm at the beginning, because it's just like everything at the beginning of that movie is totally wrong and like <laughs> uh, it's closer to my expertise than usual so i did find it harder but yeah no i mean it is that it's interesting that she basically positions like dna and uh personality hacking as effectively computer hacking but like the bit where she like you can comment out someone's personality like i don't know like i suspect that's impossible <laughs> but then again like you know maybe in 500 years it'll just be something we all do who can say yeah can i can i make some suggestions i can absolutely come up with a plausible way that you would kind of you know have a way that you silence the you know various bits of dna with a you know halfway plausible mechanism but what it sounds like is she just kind of goes at the computer and types some hashes in and then it doesn't do anything it it just felt like it was all a bit too close to like this magically happens now. Yeah, but I think this is any sufficiently advanced technology, right? Yeah, but I think does it tie into what Liz said earlier about it doesn't feel far enough in I think I wonder if the setting felt further future elsewhere, it would be easier to forgive those bits. Maybe that is a thing. I mean, absolutely, like these things would be these things would probably not bother me if I, you know, other bits of the book were making up for them for me. But since I didn't particularly like other bits of the book, they then become uh, really annoying. That, that, I mean, that does, that definitely happens. The bit that annoyed me, I did have a bit that did annoy me, is Maria, why not just let them shoot her? Whenever she gets kidnapped, she knows she's going to die eventually. So just like, 
don't do, like. I get, and and I guess that like I don't think she does. I think it comes as a bit of a surprise. Mm, I think she's as well. The first time, I don't think she does, but I think the second time she does. Mm. Because the second time she remembers, she has the gap of three weeks, and she's like, "Oh shit, this has happened before." But like, so the first time, I can see why she complied. But the second time, I was like, "Oh no, I think it's because they would destroy her clones, right?" Oh, do you think? Oh, I hadn't thought of that. The reason she's being brought back to life is because they know they need her again. If she doesn't go along with what they want, they will they'll kill her and not and make sure her clone isn't resurrected. Yes. Oh shit! No, okay. I like that. I like that explanation. Actually, yeah, fair enough. Plus, plus, it's it's horrible. I mean, they're threatening to torture her, and you might say, "Well, I'm gonna if they kill me, I'll be resurrected. And I won't have any memories of this." But in the moment, I don't think that would be a very compelling argument. No, that is fair. But also, Alison's point, like, I think there's a point where they mail her clone back to Earth, right? Yeah, and they wouldn't do that, and then she'd never be resurrected. Yeah. The reason they're doing that is they know she'll do it. They know she goes through with it. And it's possible that eventually she wouldn't. And indeed, she gets packed off by Sally on her ship full of deplorables, deplorables. Yes. It's interesting. I mean, I do, yeah, I do like how they're all connected at the end. The the second time Sally was mentioned, I was like, oh, clearly they're all, she's she's deliberately got them all together now, why? So I didn't hadn't worked out that they were all people she really wanted to effect, effect an event, a revenge on, but, you know, I did. It was obvious she was going to come in for each of them, because otherwise, why? Um, on the other hand, I was fairly blindsided when it turned out the AI was the seventh character, and that was very obvious if you were reading the book, so, you know. I get some things, I don't get other things. <laughs> in the bit we recorded before the spoiler, I said, like, there are enough revelations that if you... This book kind of... I guess there's two ways of doing a twist, which is you can have one twist and you're just very confident that you've disguised the twist well enough that people won't guess it. Or you have 17 twists and you operate on the basis that if someone gets 12 of them, five will still be surprising. And this book definitely takes the second option. But I don't think it does it... It doesn't feel, I mean, the way I've just said it out loud, listeners, you might be thinking, God, that sounds awful. But I, I did not find it awful because none of them felt like completely out of the blue. Like Alison says, like when the seventh character is revealed, you're like, oh, no, OK, yeah, no, that doesn't it doesn't feel like it's out of nowhere because there is a character who has been mentioned multiple times who it turns out is the AI. And like you say, like you work out Sally's involved very early in the book, but the the full extent of the plan it becomes clear later but you might not spot it if you think you've already spotted what's going on so i did i did quite like those aspects of it we've been recording for 43 minutes should we like record final thoughts and wrap up um or does anyone have anything burning that they would still like to say out loud i think i've covered most of it i'm trying to think is there anything else i burningly wanted to say I, and i had one thing i did work out that i wanted to say which is that i am not alone in thinking the dialogue in this novel leaves something to be desired that um quite a lot of the dialogue has both the problem of being clunky things that people don't say to each other and also the two sides of the conversation not sounding as differentiated as you want to in novels where you're deliberately stylizing the conversation so it it, it both had the problem that novelistic dialogue has and it didn't have the excuse for it that was my dialogue point it wasn't just a dialogue for me. I think the writing is very, you know, it does what it needs to. But I have been reading a book that's kind of more on the literary end of science fiction that has very kind of 
a very distinctive style and kind of makes the character voices more distinct. And I think this book probably, unfortunately, suffered from being read straight after I was reading that one. So this book was up against the following novels when it was on the Hugo ballot. It was up against The Stone Sky by N.K. Jemison, which is the conclusion to the to the trilogy. Uh, it was up against The Collapsing Empire by John Scalzi, New York 2140 by Kim Stanley Robinson, Provenance by Anne Leckie, Raven Stratagem by Yoon Ha Lee, and then Six Weeks by Mer Lafferty. Four Orbit, One Tour, One Solaris in the end. So like for me, this book is like in my top half of that ballot. But I don't know whether you guys have read the others and have an opinion. I think I've actually read all of those. Maybe not. Is The Collapsing Empire the first one of that series by Scalzi? Yeah. In which case, yes, I have read all six and I would probably put this one mm, in the bottom half. Sorry, Dom. Fair enough. I like it. I like it better than Provenance and The Collapsing Empire, I think. And I like it probably slightly better than Raven Stratagem, but I thought Raven Stratagem was the worst of that trilogy, so... Yes, I think I think it's about... I would put it about the same as Provenance. I think I like Raven Stratagem a bit more, but in a way, Raven Stratagem, and in fact the whole kind of Hexarchate novels and series of stories, basically scrapped some kind of itch for me that I really like, and so I'm willing to forgive them a lot in the way that I think things that annoy me in six weeks you are willing to completely forgive fair i bet the maths in the raven stratagem drives alice up the wall um i have not read the raven stratagem but maths in science fiction novels generally drives me up the wall what you have to bear in mind about the yoon harley trilogy is it's fantasy not science fiction because if it's science fiction it doesn't make any sense at all oh yoon harley um that's the one that's the one because speaking as a man who understands time well as well as anyone understands time those books are cray but they're great i love them (laughs) yes nine fox gambit nine fox gambit is the book that i have started to read and stopped more often than any other book ever in my life liz you guessed correctly And 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 this is why it's the book I was grasping for, and I said earlier, "Oh God, don't get me started on maths and science fiction novels." <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, uh, <coughs> fair. I'm glad we brought it up now. The point about maths is that I, I understand why physics could be tosh or biology could be tosh, but m- <coughs> maths just is. It's a description of the way in which it's not like physics. It lies, Alison. <laughs> No, it's patterns. The point is that you can imagine a universe in which you had different physics or different biology, right? But the maths is just a description of patterns and how they are. That's what it is. That was the Old Thought Podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. John, have you been listening to Tansy Gardam's Striking Out podcast? Because one thing she declares up front in that is basically she's got like a foghorn noise. And whenever there is like a person she has to discuss, but she wants to let you know that, you know, there have been a bunch of Me Too reports and, you know, accusations of harassment or whatever about the particular person. 
after the first time. She just sounds the foghorn in the background. So she'll say, you know, something like screenwriter Paul Haggis. And then it will just carry on as normal. And I think we want that noise. We don't need that necessarily for our podcast, but I do enjoy that it's just sort of a foghorn noise. The theme music for this episode was Surf Shimmy by Kevin MacLeod and Combatech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.